I'm realtor Heather Womack. I grew up in Minnesota and love all the outdoor activities we have here. In fact, I love Minnesota so much that I moved back here from Europe to raise my family in the land of beautiful hikes, refreshing clear lakes, and winter fun. That's why I'm reaching out. As a realtor, I've helped hundreds of folks buy their first home, sell the home they have, purchase a lake cabin, or start investing in Minnesota real estate. If you love adventure but need some new scenery, call me. My website is heatherwomackrealty.com. That's heatherwomack, W-O-M-A-C-K, realty.com. Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, and I am joined as always by the Chewbacca to my Han, Brandon. This is where I'm supposed to come in with my Chewy impersonation, but <laughs> I thought you'd have a Chewy for me. I, I just no, nope. I couldn't. I uh, that little bit of dignity that I have just wouldn't allow me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm doing great. The sun is shining. I have gutted my kitchen. Uh, Courtney and I have been hard at work on a kitchen remodel. People can see little photos on my Instagram story if you're interested in watching our kitchen getting remodeled. I don't see how that would be that interesting, but that's uh, that's our big spring project, and I'm pretty, pretty excited, particularly about I'm getting like uh, the Cadillac of ovens. Of range ovens yeah so that's the one thing i splurged on for our kitchen remodel courtney's really in charge of like the flooring and the tile backsplash colors but i picked the appliances and i uh yeah i went i went high end with one one particular piece so i'll be cooking ducks in there and venison and oh pheasant it's gonna be crazy when's the cookbook coming out haha <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hey, if there's any publishers out there who want to give me a cookbook deal, I would do it in a heartbeat. Yes, I, yeah, just I would check out that. his Instagram. He posts posts plenty of great pictures of his food. So yeah, give him it's that. True, deal. it's true, it's true. So yeah, the sun's out. We're about to probably this weekend. It looks like I'll be mowing the lawn for the first time of the year. How about you? What's what's shaking? Uh, not much. I think I'm just going to actually hit the road this weekend and uh, see where it takes me. I think that's what me and my girlfriend are going to do. Bring the dog Ooh, with. Yeah. Nice. Find some trails, do something. Just get what up. direction are you going to drive? Do you know? Well, we've been heading, we've headed north and south a lot in Minnesota. If you just follow the river south, it's beautiful. If you go up yep. near Duluth, yep. it's just beautiful. So we might actually, we're both vaccinated, but we might actually uh, head uh, east into Wisconsin and uh, hit up some of their state parks, you know, still safely uh, away from people, but check out their scenery a little bit because it's, it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, besides remodeling, is that all you're going to be doing this weekend? uh, You know, I've kind of done everything we can do right now. So um, this weekend, I probably need to get back to some writing. I kind of took the week off of writing. So I need to write, write, write. And I'll probably smoke some meat. Okay. You know, because we don't have any appliances. Like, we can't cook. Well, then I guess you got to smoke meat. I mean, that's... (laughs) The oven is... The oven and the... the, the range are in like in the garage floor because I got to take him to some appliance recycling center. Some guy bought the dishwasher off Craigslist and he's coming in 45 minutes to pay me a hundred bucks for a used dishwasher. So 
I'm just, uh, yeah, we got an empty kitchen and I can grill that grill or microwave. That's about it. <laughs> it sounds like you're in college. <laughs> kind of. It feels like that. We're eating a lot of ramen. Just dump a can of tuna in there. You know, what, what else do you else. need? Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, um, we just finished this conversation, Brandon, that you listened into with Don Payne. He is uh, he's a vice president, a dean, and a professor at Denver Seminary in, obviously, in Denver. It's in Littleton, Colorado. And uh, he's written a bunch of books that, uh, you know, we'll have a link to his uh, website in the show notes. But just a great guy. So thoughtful. Such a great conversation. It was uh, fun to listen to. It's, it's, it's as always, when I, when I listen into these podcasts, it's very cerebral for me. So a couple of times I didn't yeah. understand what you're talking about, but I think <laughs> I think, I think I got the overall point. <laughs> well, we talked a little bit about uh, the, the seminary education because we're both invested in that. But the vast majority of the conversation was about hunting. And uh, he's written a pa- an unpublished paper, which I hope he'll publish, that lists six common objections to hunting and a Christian theological response to each of those objections. And what just what a great, thoughtful guy. And uh, obviously, well, as you'll hear by the end, we didn't even get, you know, we, we got through all the objections in the paper, but then he also has some uh, positive affirmations about why we can hunt as Christians. Uh, and we're going to get to those in a follow-up, so we'll have to have a sequel with him. But he's, he's really great. I, I think I know people will love it. I really appreciate you listening, all you listeners out there in the Reverend Hunter listenership. Uh, we'd love for you to rate, review, subscribe, share. If you're interested in sponsorship uh, of our podcast, we'd love that as well. So just give us a holler. And now off to my conversation with Don Payne, the dean and professor of theology at Denver Seminary and a hunter and ethicist. Here's my conversation with Don. Hey, Don, thank you for joining me on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. Man, it is. Okay. You and I met years ago at a conference that this is going to be it really we're you know i like to shed as many listeners as possible early in an interview so this will so (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna go deep in the weeds man we're gonna talk about a conference that took place i think in 2001 that sounds right at 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 denver seminary where you teach isn't that right yeah it it was at at a church it was at a congregation in the denver area yeah Okay. Okay. Here's what I remember about that. I remember the, I I was part of this little crew called, well, we weren't even called Emergent Village yet. We were called, I don't know, Young Leaders Network, part of Leadership Network. Okay. And there was a, I don't know, some of the guys I was with for some reason thought the conference wasn't um, controversial enough. (laughs) And so all, here's all I remember, Don, from that is that there was a, a panel discussion and it included, I think, a pastor of a pretty conservative church in Denver area, maybe a church planner, and then somebody from Campus Crusade staff. 
And mm. these guys, these other emergent guys, Doug Paget, Chris C, you know, this posse who, yeah. who got in, we all got in plenty of trouble. They they like put me up to starting to basically pick a theological fight with some of the people on that panel during that one <laughs> uh, workshop. And I'm just telling you right now. I really hope you weren't one of the people that I was picking a fight with on that panel. No, I don't think you were. In fact, I don't. I don't believe I was there for the entire conference. So, okay, um, I don't even know that I heard Smart. that panel. I was on a panel, and I think I was on a panel with a prof from um, Iliff School of Theology. And okay, she and I had done some prep already because you know we're from two very different traditions and. Yeah. Um, I just remember being on the panel with her, but I don't remember who else was on the panel. So we we may have been on different panels, <laughs> but we were at the same place That's, at the same time, roughly. We were at the same place at the same time. And I just have these very vivid memories of uh, these guys putting me up to like basically picking a fight with a Campus Crusade staff member over. I don't even remember what the topic was at the time, but... <laughs> We went on to pick a lot of fights for over for about 10 years and then realized that probably wasn't um, a recipe for long-term success with the emerging <laughs> church movement. But it was fun while it lasted, Don. It was fun yeah. while it lasted. <laughs> yeah, the waters were stirring for a few years there, weren't they? Oh, man, it was... It was they were heady times, and I miss them. I mean, I miss, I miss aspects of it. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was fun to be the one everybody's writing articles about and blogging about and stuff like that. But also there's a downside to that. And I actually welcome now in my fifties living a quieter life Yeah, no uh, kidding. than I did in, in those days in my thirties. Yeah. That was pretty intense. Well, I remember um, somebody, I, yeah. again, I don't remember whether we actually spoke, but I remember somebody pointing you out to me, you were sitting, uh, between sessions away, you know, pounding away on your laptop and somebody's <laughs> like, that's Tony Jones. That's Tony Jones. Oh man. And you're like, who? That's, cool. who? that's Tony Jones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I use, I, I say to people sometimes I used to be a minor Christian celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a C lister. And then I dropped <laughs> off the list altogether. And uh, You're probably it was in a, a bit place. shocking. Yeah, it was a bit shocking at the time, but I'm actually I'm actually a better man for it. I think for having mm. dropped off the the C list Christian celebrity list. Um, yeah. Well, hey, uh, seminary education—that's a tough business to be in these days. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is uh, it is quite a ride. Nothing like what it was even 20, 25 years ago when I don't know when you were in, in seminary, but when I was, I, I, it, I went to game. I went to yeah I went to Fuller from um, ninety to ninety three. Okay, and then I was at Princeton for my PhD. I mean, I was on campus oh three oh four oh five, and then ended up you know wrote my dissertation over many years and finished okay. in 2011. But okay. I'd say even when I left Princeton in 05, it still seemed like, you know, the dorms were full and the classrooms were full and, uh, you know, they were, they were hiring new professors. Now Princeton has a massive endowment that places like Denver and Fuller don't have. Yeah. They can kind of play their own game in some ways. Yeah. But even then, I think for a lot of them, it's still, it's still changing. Yeah, what do you think the future holds for seminary education? Well, for for good and ill, 
the electronic, the virtual modalities are mm-hmm. increasingly owning the day. I, you know, you look at these massive schools who have these totally online programs and a lot of us never want to be like that. But at the same time, yeah. we're realizing that's where it, it's, it's a matter of accessibility. And right. we have strong online programs now. We're not a totally online school, but we have strong online programs that we never would have envisioned even 10, 15 years ago, depending yeah. that heavily on them. But, you know, it's allowed us to serve people from literally around the globe that we never would have had opportunity to connect with otherwise. And I'm grateful for that. But, man, it is a game changer in terms of the uh, the resourcing you have to have and the things you have to learn to deliver education that way and the trade-offs yeah. that come with it. And I think it's yeah, that's only going to increase. Yeah, yeah I'm, I, I teach in the DMIN program, the Doctor of Ministry program at Fuller, my uh-huh. alma mater. And I, I have a cohort of 10 students. Um, you know, it's funny because we, we meet in person, supposedly. We, of course, didn't last year because of COVID. We ended up mm-hmm. moving everything online. We are going to meet in person this June um, and canoe together in the Boundary Waters of northern Minnesota, oh, nice. which is good. But yeah, pretty cool. And you know, one of the one of the perks. I mean, a DMIN program is very different, I think, than a, a an MDiv program or whatever. But one of the perks is it's interesting because I, I uh, I've assigned the students as I do every time I teach this kind of ecological doctrine of creation course. I I have them read Jurgen Moltmann's um, creation book and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's some pretty heavy duty, you know, German theology for maybe people who aren't used to reading that kind of stuff. And they have a weekly Zoom where the student, the you know, they, they've just d- done this voluntarily on their own. They have a weekly Zoom and c- are going through this book chapter by chapter on their own and supporting each other as they read it. So in some ways, it's, you know, the, the ubiquity of Zoom has benefited them in prep and preparing for you know, our in-person get-togethers and that, you know, it wasn't even happening the last time I taught this cohort five years ago. Yeah, there's there's a definite upside to it. And and I'll be the, the first to admit that I was a reluctant adapter myself. But it's, yeah. it's a real thing. Uh, there are there are great benefits to it. And uh, some schools are still, um, I think, resistant to that. Uh, we, we've been all things considered, I think a pretty early adopter. So we've been able to stay toward the front of the curve Mm -hmm. uh, with either online or hybrid forms of education. And, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. It's um, I mean, at a purely pragmatic level, it's kept us in jobs. Right. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, you know, it also has uh, just increased our capacity to serve and I'm always grateful for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I assume we find you today in uh, Colorado. Is that right? Yeah, in Littleton. How is it? When was the last time it snowed out there? Uh, last night. Oh, we come on. About, no, kidding. No, no kidding. We got about four inches of snow last night. Uh, mm. it, you know, it's one of those typical spring snows, so just wet, heavy mess. Yeah, uh, right. Much of which is melting today because it's in the mid-40s probably, but that's... Colorado, and we're going to get a little bit more early next week. Oh, wow. But it was in the 70s ski, last week. Ski resort still open? 
A couple of them have stayed. Yeah, kind of. There are a couple of them that are staying open a little extra. I think because of COVID, they're wanting to squeeze all the income they can out of the season. Bucks. Yeah. Yeah. I once skied a basin on July 4th. They always, yeah. A basin always stays open the latest. They're probably the highest in elevation and they they're the last to close. That was uh, back when I was a youth pastor and did crazy stuff like when you get paid to drive ski, on. right? Yeah, drive. Well, that's yeah. I mean, honestly, when I had a church budget to buy the lift tickets for me, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the last time I could afford to ski in Colorado. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. Normal um, mortals can't afford that. I mean, it's crazy. I can't. Yeah, anyway. I, I, I know. I have to go to the. I have to go to the off-brand places that no one's ever heard of before. You know, with tow ropes and stuff, T bars, <laughs> <laughs> pommel, pommel lifts. <laughs> right. So, well, our friend, you know, it, I, I remember. I do remember you, and I, I, you know, your name was kind of uh, back of mind, and then our mutual friend Jason Michelli put it to front of mind when he emailed the two of us last fall and said uh that i should have you on the podcast and sure enough you wrote back that you were pretty darn busy hunting in the fall and so it's taken us uh, a while to, to to get you on because i needed you to i need to get you you know give you time to butcher all those animals yeah man that, that takes you... a while because i'm not very good at it <laughs> <laughs> i do it because i'm cheap <laughs> but, but i'm not very no good. i i do my own too but i got a brother who's a surgeon and to watch that guy break down an animal is it's a thing of beauty somebody who just knows you know how to get in there but yeah i'm like i i i take a long time to do my tell tell me about what did you hunt last fall and and you know how'd you do uh, i hunted elk uh, mule deer and antelope and i got everything but an elk dang so man it's been a few years i've, I've gotten two elk in my life uh i should have uh, here's the, you know, the coulda, shoulda, woulda hunter story that everybody uh-huh. has. Yeah. Uh, I should have had four or five total uh, if I were not kind of a bonehead in some ways. Um, but I've gotten two, but it's been a few years since I got my last one. But I've, I've been um, fortunate to get uh, mule deer and antelope most every year. I go up to Wyoming for antelope. You know what? I have been told, I've said this before on the podcast, uh, I have been told by multiple people, if you want to shoot a, uh, you know, if you want to shoot a, a cervid out west, the best way to start is an antelope in Wyoming because you can buy an over-the-counter tag. Well, maybe not over-the-counter. I mean, I did buy a point or something, and I'm gonna hope. I hope to get one uh, a tag for uh, Wyoming. But yeah, I've been told that's a pretty good way to get out there and hunt an uh, an animal out West. Uh, actually, I think that is maybe my favorite hunt and it's, mm-hmm. I've been hunting Wyoming, uh, for, uh, I don't know, 17, 18 years, maybe. And, you know, I'm a low budget guy, so I never figured mm-hmm. I could afford out of state tags, but I had a student from Wyoming, uh, in the early two thousands who told me that, um, you can get out of state, uh, doe tags, for about 40 bucks they were in the early 30s at that point hmm. uh, but it's hmm. it's probably the cheapest out-of-state hunt you'll ever find uh, so i get a couple of those every year they're up to a little over 40 dollars a piece right now for a doe tag and i'm not a okay. trophy hunter i'm a meat hunter so yeah same uh, and, but i think it's the perfect hunt because it's it's just enough work 
to make you feel like you earned your keep. It's, you know, it's not fish in a barrel. Yeah. Uh, but still, they're plentiful enough that if you know where to go and you at least halfway know what you're doing or have some uh, some good guidance, you've got a really high success rate. And how do you decide where to go? Do you use like Hunt and Fool or one of those top rut or one of those paid app services? No, no. We we just hunt BLM land. When I first started, okay. we were hunting private land where ranchers would um, would let us get on. And then the ranchers started charging us. So we just went on to straight BLM land. Hmm. And, uh, you know, you kind of word of mouth, things like that. We, I, I've hunted various areas and mostly central Wyoming around Casper. And you kind of roam around and all you have to do is scout a little bit and you'll see where they are because there's nothing right? they can hide behind. And are there a ton of other hunters? Um, sometimes on the weekends there are, but, you know, interestingly, okay. a lot of the hunters that I see are uh, town people or they'll come from the local Wyoming communities and they're just trophy hunters out there looking for the, looking for the big horns. Interesting. Um, and so during the week, it's, it's not that, it's not that bad. And it's so spread out, you know, it's so big that yeah. you have plenty of room to, to roam around. And we've never, we've never bumped up against lots of hunters. We've never been in, in each other's way. Hmm. Well, when, when I, if I get a tag here, I may be, uh, hitting you up for some advice on where and when to go. Cause it, it, it definitely, I, I did a Colorado elk hunt during, uh, what was it? Second rifle or third rifle, whenever you can yeah. buy the over the counter tag, second uh -huh. rifle or something. And I did that a year and a half ago. And my goodness, I mean, I saw a couple, I saw a couple cows and I saw dozens of hunters I was down in the San Juan mountains and, uh, yeah, some of those areas are so crazy, so heavily hunted that it, you know, they, it kind of looks like a pumpkin patch with all the blaze orange. Oh, Ab, that's a great way to describe it, man. Every trailhead had six pickup trucks, you know, and yeah. there were guys on horseback and guys on ATVs and yeah, I didn't stand a chance. I, I was pretty naive about how hard that would be. I'd watch too many episodes of Meat Eater, I guess. To think. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> you and know? Steve Rinella always gets his he always gets he, his animal. Doesn't he, he does. Even if it takes two episodes, he always gets it. <laughs> he always gets, <laughs> yeah, it's a little deceptive. Elk elk hunting, man, that is hard work. It yeah. is really hard work. But you know, hunting antelope is what keeps me hunting elk. Really? Because I tell at least me, have tell something. me why that is. Well, because I have something I can do each year that I'm gonna probably be successful at. And that keeps oh, me yeah. from getting too discouraged at elk because elk hunting is just a lot of work. Last year, our elk hunt, we were uh, we were up around Kremling, Colorado, and it got down to twenty below. Which I mean, you guys Ooh. in Minnesota are used to that twenty below stuff, but we're not. Yeah, but you and, you don't want to. Where were you staying? Out like in a tent? We were in a tent. We were in a wall tent. But oh, still, man, when it gets it. twenty below in a tent, it's too cold to hunt. The animals are bedded down. We just stayed in the tent with the heater on. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's no fun. And then tell me about mule deer. I've, uh, you know, mule deer get kind of a, are a bad rap for taste. What do you think about that? I well, I haven't had enough white-tailed deer to give them a good comparison. I've I've shot a couple of white-tailed deer out in the eastern Colorado cornfields, but. Um, I mean, and that's really good stuff. You know, that corn fed venison. That's, oh yeah. That's what we, that's, that's what we shoot. That's they, good they stuff. Eat corn and corn and acorns are what our white yeah, tails eat. Yeah. And I think the meat is incredible. 
Well, mule deer meat is, it's not at that caliber, but when I first started hunting mule deer, I was really wary of it for that reason. I thought, man, this, you know, these mountain muleys, they're just feeding on whatever they can find up in the hills. And I didn't think it was going to be very good, but I've had really good experience with it. You know, like you probably oh, learned this, how you, how you handle the meat and how you cook it. That makes a lot of difference. You know, Don, I agree. I, I think for, you know, at first I, I, I would say to people like, oh, it's, it's all in how you cook it. You know, people complain about whitetail. Uh, well, I'm like, well, it's not, it's very lean. It's not fatty. You know, you need to be very careful with how you cook it. But I'm more and more, the more I, the more deer I shoot and butcher, the more I think the handling of the meat uh, right during that butchering process makes a huge difference in the, in the ultimate flavor. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Um, because even upstream from that, uh, even the, the immediate field dressing and, and skinning yeah. seems to make a difference. Now I've, I've learned that with antelope because quite often, you know, we'll be hunting in September, October, and it'll still be pretty warm out there. And I yeah. see these dudes, you know, driving around in pickups with, uh, you know, two or three animals in the bed of their truck in the heat of the day, haven't even skinned them yet. Uh, just yeah. looking for the next one. And, we we keep coolers with ice in the back of our trucks, and when we put one down, that thing is is unzipped and peeled and on ice within two hours. And that that yeah, I that's been one of the things. Difference. Yeah, that that actually has worried me a little bit about antelope hunting in Wyoming is that uh, I you know it, it, you, I think you'd have to work real fast to get that animal on ice. Yeah. Yeah, and and we've learned to do that because we, but we're equipped to do it. We just keep the coolers with us. Um, I uh-huh. I have a homemade skinning pole that I put on the huh. bumper hitch on the back of my pickup, and even if I'm out in the middle of nowhere, when I put one down, I all I got to do is drag it to my truck, and uh, I can skin it and quarter it right there in the middle of nowhere and get it on ice. Oh, that's very cool. Well. Let's let's turn from the uh, pragmatic to the theoretical, um, from the mundane to the sublime. <laughs> uh, you you sent me an essay you wrote and have been revising over the last decade, titled "A Theological Reflection on Hunting," and I feel quite fortunate to, you know, be in possession of this essay because I think it's very thoughtful and gives us a nice kind of skeleton for our conversation today. Um, and the fact that it's as yet unpublished means that <laughs> I can, you know, we can, uh, it's, it's going to be a spoiler. I can, I can say spoiler alert to all the listeners. Cause someday I hope, I do hope that you will publish this. I thought and, about it. I just don't know who would publish yeah. it. You know, my, one, at one point, my, my goal years ago was to be the first seminary professor ever published in North American whitetail. Um, oh, that has not happened, <laughs> but um, I don't know who would publish yeah. something like this. Do you know this book that came out called uh, God, Nimrod, and the World? It's it's no. edited by a Baylor professor. I'm going to send you a link to that, but it's, um, well, your essay would fit perfectly in that kind of a book, and you know, probably it's the only one that'll ever be um, edited like along those lines. Um, Christian perspectives on sport hunting, I think, is the subtitle of it. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, you'd like it, and your essay would fit well in that. But but also, you know, what's interesting about that book is some of the people. I um, I don't know. I I don't want to be too critical of them, but 
there's a middle section of the book that is basically these kind of verbatims with celebrity hunters. So uh-huh. some people who have TV shows and stuff like that um, who are Christian and, you know, even like one of the Duck Dynasty guys. And the question is, you know, like what's basically how does your faith influence your hunting? And you would be, I think, you know, like sort probably not surprised, but quite disappointed with most of their responses mm. because they really lack any kind of theological depth or reflection. It's a lot of like, well, I mean, doesn't Genesis say we should have dominion over the animals? Mm. Like that, yeah. That's the that's the extent of it. As far as they go, huh? And, yeah, and what one of the things I like, okay, let's just start. I mean, at the top of your essay, one of you actually mention a couple celebrity hunters, uh, Ted Nugent and Stephen Rinella, and um use them as uh basically examples of why we need to go a little bit deeper because the objections to hunting are uh you know, they're 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 vocal in in our culture and they're growing and i just want to start by asking you why do you think a particular why do you think a christian apologetic for hunting is particularly important as opposed to just i don't know a general apologetic societal apologetic for hunting well that's interesting um well as i've let me let me take Steve Ranella, and I know you've had the privilege to interview Ranella, which I think is really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've listened to Ranella a lot uh, on his podcast and his his YouTube show, and really, really enjoy the guy, and appreciate so much of of what he does. And if I may um, interrupt, Don, don't you think I've I haven't I, I've asked him to be on my podcast, and he's respectfully declined. But um, based on the way he quotes the Bible and has knowledge of the Bible, I think he must have grown up with some kind of church, church family life. You know, I wonder about that. I've, uh, in one of his books, uh, which one is it? Uh, maybe Buffalo Hunter or something like that. Uh, in one of his books, he talks a lot about his upbringing and I, I haven't picked up on that, but if you, I, I would agree with you. You listen to the way he reflects on things. Obviously he's a very intelligent guy. Yes. Um, and somewhere he has picked up on on those sensibilities and some of those biblical motifs, those biblical connections. When I listen to him defend hunting, and I, I, I for example, I listened to him once. Um, he was in, I don't know, like a coffee shop or something somewhere, and a bunch of local anti-hunters were kind of firing away at him. And and in his defense of it, he's he, he seems to defend it more on the basis of. Um, just this kind of broadly ev- evolutionary understanding that hey, we're we're the chief primates and uh, we're the higher life forms. They're the lower life forms. Um, you know, it's just prime. It's primal for us. Yeah. Which yeah. Well, I mean, you you can go down that trail a ways, but that just yeah. doesn't go far enough. I mean, because that does not take into account the the integrity of of all created life the the importance the value of all created life so if you've got a yeah. a good uh, eco theology somehow you you have to situate hunting within that overall framework of the the value 
of all life. Hmm. Um, not, yeah. not, you know, not all created in God's image and yet all having value. And I mean, that's one of the things that has, has factored into my own, um, ethical formation, I guess you could call it as a hunter is having to find a place for that within the fact that I'm taking that life. Right. Right. And, and we've got yeah, to, we have to yeah. account for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I think you're right. And I, I, you know, obviously the whole point of this podcast is, and, and honestly, it, I've done a lot of writing about it and a lot of thinking about it for myself because I've, in, in the years, you know, in the years since you and I met in 2001, uh, I kind of went deeply into the church and then was, you know, slowly kind of expelled from the church and have found a great deal of spiritual sustenance in the in the practice of hunting and then have tried to kind of put get my head around that like what's that about hmm. why you know how and to kind of give some you know theological uh framework to that as well um you know let I, you you have some objections you know, common kind of common objections in your paper, in your essay here that I'd love to, mm -hmm. you know, run down and ask you about. Um, and the first one, one of the objections to hunting is, you know, this is a distinctly, I guess, Christian objection to hunting, or you might say a Judeo-Christian objection to hunting. And that is the only reason that we have killed animals in the past is because of the fall. And I guess yeah. to, uh, maybe to spin that out a little bit, I think whether, you know, whether a person considers the Garden of Eden, um, an, you know, an actual historical place and time that happened or, you know, a mythopoetic kind of event in the memory of Israel yeah. doesn't really matter. What matters is that the story is that human beings were in perfect harmony with God. And I guess we would assume they were vegetarians or, I mean, I, I we can't assume they didn't need to eat because right. they were told not to eat of one particular tree. Uh, so they had to eat, but there's no, right? Am I right? There's no talk of killing an animal or barbecuing meat or anything like that. We don't, we don't get the first, uh, you know, we don't get the first burned animal sacrifice until after the garden. Right. Right. Well, to go back to your previous question, Tony, that is maybe one of the reasons I have felt a need to give a bit more of a theological rationale or apologetic for hunting, even within the Christian community, because uh, it was strange to me um, when I first started to encounter this. And it's probably... I don't want to get too far afield here, but it's probably more a feature of being in the academy than it is being in the church, at least okay. in my experience. Uh, but I started to encounter, when I first moved into academic life, I was encountering, you know, considerable colleagues uh, of mine who were uh, kind of, I think in some cases, kind of appalled when they found out yes. that I was a hunter. Yes. And, and you, and you, let's just say for listeners, like you had been a pastor for 
what, 10 or 15 years prior uh, that, uh, to eight. becoming a I professor? Eight. Yeah. Eight. Okay. Eight Better years. part of a decade. And you, yeah. you did not, you did not have that hostility toward hunting when you were a pastor? I never did. Now that probably reflected okay. some of the circles I ran in, but I never did. But once I went into the yeah. academy, I found yeah. out that um, colleagues with, you know, even within the same faith tradition uh, were often, I mean, their sensibilities were just really rankled at the thought yeah. that I would hunt. And I would get, I mean, they were, you know, polite enough, good natured enough about it to rib me. Uh, but I could tell that secretly they, they really thought I was a barbarian. And okay, what's what's up? What's up with that? And so these were that first objection that I stated in the paper. Um, it kind of comes out of some of those conversations, and so I've reflected a bit about that. And interestingly, even though I wrote this first draft of this, however many years ago, just recently, I I was informed of something that shed a little bit more light on it. And that I don't even remember where I heard this, but evidently, um, you know, paleontologists, uh, they, they have plenty of fossil evidence of animal predation long before the human race ever appeared. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if that's, if that's the case, you're saying I, animal on animal, on animal, animal on animal. animal. Yeah. So, yeah. So this, mm -hmm. this notion of a, of an Edenic or even pre Edenic world of utter harmony between all creatures, the paleontolo paleontological evidence does not bear that out. Uh, we've got well, animal. Well, well, what do you do with what do you do with that as a you know as a theologian who probably skews a little more conservatively than I do? How, what do you do with that? Rel, uh, you know, vis a vis the Genesis account of the the perfect harmony of the garden. Well, I don't know exactly. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a theologian, not an Old Testament scholar, so I, uh -huh. I can punt yeah. on, on some yeah, of that. Me, I, yeah, I love it. Yeah, me too. I me too. <laughs> I don't know uh, entirely. I, theologically, uh, I think it's clear to me something changed. Something changed in the nature of our of all of our relationships, um, mm -hmm. hu human to creation as well as human to human, human to God. Um, but. It, it seems increasingly to me that it's a bit of an over reading of the text to assume this sort of um, Disney-esque Bambi um, state of, of romanticized harmony within every or between every life form. That, that seems to be a, an, an over reading of the text. The, the reality, as I can discern it, is that the created order is a wild place. Yeah. It's a, it's a wild okay. place and life of any form always exists on life of some other form. Now this, this may be mm -hmm. pressing to kind of an extreme, but if you think about that, even in terms of, you know, vegetarian life, I mean, to, to consume plant life is to consume something that's living in some respect. Yeah. L life in order for any life form to survive, it takes other, it survives on other life forms sentient or otherwise. And that that does not seem to have been accounted for in some of these notions of this Edenic or pre-Edenic harmony that gets superimposed, I think superimposed on the creation account, however you want to read that account. So yeah, something I, changed. I, I, yeah. But, uh, but I, I, don't, I don't think 
the evidence supports that um, no creature ever ate another creature before the fall. Well, and also it seems like it, it was a very brief period of time <laughs> that they were in the garden before they ate the bad fruit and were were kicked out. And I, I but I do remember to your point, a, a seminary professor when I was at Fuller saying, you know, to to this this idea that the our understanding of the Garden of Eden may be overdetermined from what the text actually says is, he said, well, do you think that yeah. when Adam or Eve stubbed their toe that it hurt? Like there was pain. Oh, These people, course. you know, that just just to just to a, a, as a twenty-two-year-old seminary student, he, he was just trying to you know plant that seed that like maybe you have over, uh, to use your term overdetermined what the garden was really like. Oh, I, th- I think we've done that in all kinds of ways, and in in fact, yeah, uh, I, I tell my students here in in classes where this kind of thing comes up that. Um, yeah, we we have so romanticized that Edenic state uh, that we've 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 kind of gutted it in some ways of a lot of the the visceral realness that had to have been there. I mean, right? Did they ever trip over a tree root? Right. I mean, you know. So I mean, did the co- yeah. did the coagulative properties of our blood magically <laughs> appear after the fall? Right. right. And that's, <laughs> did yeah. they ever cut themselves? Well, wh- why not? Yeah, of course. Yes. Good point. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, um, well, let's move on to another one because it's one I hear a lot and I, I'm interested in your, your rebuttal to this objection. And that is, uh, Hey, Jesus was a pacifist. Jesus, you know, preached a different kind of kingdom uh, they, Jesus basically upset the 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 Jewish understanding of the Messiah was kind of a military, political, religious figure who was going to come in and kick ass against the Romans, who were obviously a heavily militarized occupying force. Yeah. Jesus said, "No, no, I'm a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting." Uh, my my kingdom is a kingdom of peace and i'm a pacifist king um and then you know uh, people will take from that and say well we shouldn't be violently you know killing animals so that we can eat them like it, this is we should be moving toward a more peaceable kingdom writ large what's your what's your response to that well, a couple of things come to mind. Once, I, one is that we we have to make uh, a more a more thoughtful distinction, a more careful distinction, or make some distinctions within that word violence, because yeah. that the, the way uh, the concept of violence seems condemned to, to me is it as a moral category. Um, you, you know, violence as um, uh, an, an assault upon the, the the dignity and the integrity of of, an, of another person, or violence as uh, trying to take into our own hands that which only God can do. Um, so I would want to have a more refined understanding of what violence is as it's proscribed within Scripture and within you know within the ethic of Jesus, and the subcategory, or maybe the other. 
um, line of thought that needs to be differentiated would be would be force. Um, oh. And it, uh, often it, it seems to me like violence and force are undifferentiated in some of these conversations. But there's interesting. But, but I think that's a, an important distinction because there's no way to uh, to, to navigate life in the created order without being forceful in some respects or imposing oneself on on our ambient environment you know mm-hmm. e- even when and i've i've seen maybe extreme examples of this but and, and they may be extreme but to make the point um some years ago i i heard lectures by a and kind of a theological ecologist who was making an argument against cutting weeds in one's lawn because <laughs> okay. that was that was a okay. that was a violation of yeah. the 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 natural order and what it inherently wanted to do you just let them grow and this this may be more of a reflection on me than on that lecturer but i just thought that was about as silly as anything i'd ever heard <laughs> it's yeah. it's impossible to live in our world without imposing oneself in some respect on one's ambient environment. Now yeah. that's, that's force, but that's not the same thing as the moral category of violence. And the way, the way that objection has sometimes come my way. And I say this in the, in the paper, you know, people will say, why, why are you killing these innocent animals? They've never done anything to you. And that really sounds like kind of the wrong question to ask because mm-hmm. um, innocence, at least in, in my understanding, innocence is a moral category. Um, I, I don't yes. think of I don't think of other creatures, creatures I may hunt, as moral agents in the same way that a person is a moral agent. And and secondly, I think the question is misframed because. It's not a question of revenge. And they say, what have, you, what have they ever done for you or done to you? Well, that kind of presumes that I'm taking revenge. Well, I'm not taking revenge. That's, that's a, a kind of a, a category mistake in some respects. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure yeah, that the, the yeah. violence, I'm not sure that the violence objection quite fits the nature of the case, really. No, I think you're right. I mean, there's a couple things that occur to me and and I've had similar conversations with people that, you know, as you and you know, uh, it, people people draw the, the people draw these distinctions or have this co- kind of continuum of animal life and so you'll say, "Well, do you ever slap I'll say, you know, do you ever slap a mosquito?" Like, I dare right. you to come on a canoe trip with me in the boundary waters and never use violence against another another living creature because like you're not going to survive if you don't yeah you will be slapping mosquitoes and black flies and you know if there's a tick on you you're going to pull the tick off and are you going to like set the tick free to go live again i mean probably not you're going to squash under your foot or whatever yeah but you know there be part of this is it's also funny that like some people they have no problem with fishing and with even with sport like catch and release fishing, which I actually personally have some trouble with, um, but they have a real problem with hunting. And it's obviously because, well, what I say is like, well, you, you know, people will say that to me like, or I'll, I'll I'd shoot a pheasant, but I'd never shoot a deer. And I just say, because you don't want to shoot an animal with eyelashes. 
Like, is there something, there's something about the big brown eyes on a deer. See, but that's just Disney. And I have to believe that. Yes, that's right. I agree. I agree. I I have to believe that in so many cases, I mean, this, this may sound snarky and I I don't mean it that way really, but I, I have to believe that lots of the moral sensibilities that are pushing against hunting have been more, have been formed more by Disney and Bambi and than they have by any, any thoughtful ethical or biblical reflections. I agree. And yeah, so I, I think you're right that, you know, it's, it, it, it is, I've, I've tried to make the case with like a vegetarian or vegan before too, that, you know, if you're eating, whatever you're eating, if you're eating a soybean, like that was harvested off of a living plant. But, um, you know, I also hear in you uh, something that I think probably non-Christians might object to is I hear in, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't, and I'm with you, I think on this, although I don't know that I'd say it unequivocally and I might have to think about it some more, reflect on it more, that other animals, are you saying any other animal other than a human being is not a moral agent or doesn't have moral agency. And you can imagine that for non, some non-Christians, I think some philosophers, for instance, would have a problem with that. Like putting, Mm -hmm. it's a little medieval, you know, hierarchy, um, you know, chain of being kind of thing, putting human beings above all other animals. Yeah, I get that. Um, I mean, I, 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 can acknowledge the the pushback that might come from that, um, and in one respect, that might be kind of a conversational stalemate because none of us have ever yeah. been inside the the head of another <laughs> critter. No, right? this is right, Don. I, I agree with you. Like it's that's that's the same thing. I think. I think. Well, I don't want to take away their moral agency if they have it. But I have yet to see any evidence of moral agency, and yeah. you know somebody might point to a, a, a some Instagram video of a dog, you know, lassie dog rescuing a kid, Tommy, from the well or something right, like that. Right. Yeah. But it's again, almost always dogs. Is yeah, <laughs> which if there if there are moral agents in the animal kingdom, it probably would it, be dogs. It's dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah. you know, obviously, what we do is we anthropomorphize those animals, and that's more kind of the Disneyification. I mean, Lassie, you know that that's a kind of a Disney version of a dog, that uh, almost yeah. a talking dog that can communicate with humans and go rescue kids from wells. And that's really um, that's really yeah. what I'm trying to challenge is that that. Um, yeah. romanticized personification of the the animal kingdom. Um, we, uh, granted, we could we could get into all kinds of philosophical weeds about the possibilities or maybe the gradations of agency that might exist in other creatures. Um, if I'm going to work from some kind of commitment to the Christian scriptures, I have a hard time making that work. That moral agency exists in other creatures in the same way, qualitatively at least, that it does yeah. in human beings. Um, yeah. Yep. I, okay. Next one, which is one I hear a lot is, um, sure. Maybe your and our ancestors all need, cause I'll say to people, look, we've been hunting for 10,000 plus years as human beings. And, and there's even evolutionary biologists will say that it's like our, the ability of, of, of homo sapiens to cook meat and cook out some of the parasites in meat 
allowed us. To, that's maybe why we, you know, defeated the Neanderthals and became the like bipedal apex predators on the planet. Mm-hmm. But they'll say, well, yes, but we don't need to hunt. We don't need to kill animals anymore. We used to have to do that. Now we don't need to. You can get plenty of protein from uh, other sources without right. killing animals. So uh, the, if it's no longer necessary, we should no longer do it. You know, then the, let me loop back to this uh, kind of chat that I heard with Stephen Ranella when he was being grilled um, during this talk session. Uh I saw this because there was a a young British guy who had his own YouTube and he was actually setting up Ranella as a foil to what he wanted to say. And, Mm -hmm. and he was a a really bright, thoughtful guy. Um, His argument, however, was that was similar to that, that even if the, the race did that or needed to do that for survival eons ago, uh, can't we evolve beyond that? And, and that's, yes, you know, in, exactly. in today's with a lot of the philosophical sensibilities that shape today's um, discourse, that's uh, that has a lot of emotional appeal or maybe even some logical appeal to it for a lot of people. Um, you mentioned a moment ago that some some of some of what I said could be construed by some as being rather medieval in terms of like hierarchy of being mm-hmm. and curiously that that kind of argument that you know can't we evolve beyond that strikes me as a subtle version of that same kind of hierarchical gradated thinking that if we're yes. moving beyond hunting we're actually uh moving to a higher state of being well that that's the very medieval type of hierarchical anthropology that you know some would push back against uh that that to move away from consuming meat and everything that's involved in consuming meat to move away from that is a higher order of being. Well, again, on my more snarky days, I'm just going to say, who made that rule? Yeah. <laughs> Says who? That that's a higher order of being. That Now, that certainly right. does accord, I think, better with certain uh, contemporary, particularly urbanized sensibilities. Mm-hmm. But I'm not convinced that constitutes a higher order of being. I'm, I'm just not convinced of that. Yeah, and I, 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 I mean, I would even tack on to that that I'm not convinced that we are evolving socially. Okay, it's obviously we're evolving in certain ways. We're evolving. Our technology is evolving. Mm-hmm. Our mm-hmm. our ability to transport ourselves efficiently around the planet is, is evolving. But like the the uh, toll that jet engine fuel exhaust is taking on the planet, like net, (laughs) is that net evolution good or is that net evolution bad? You could say the same thing about, you know, social media and the internet. Yeah, it's it's, it's all a mixed bag. I, I don't think it's unequivocal like evolution as though evolution is forward progress. And that seems to me, um, a kind of enlightenment ideal that mm-hmm. I personally reject and find totally wanting as an argument. And that mm-hmm. I, I find that also in that argument of like, well, we're, we've, we've evolved past eating meat. And I'm just like, do you know the 
number of human beings on this planet who need to eat meat every day. Like that, that is a very privileged, enlightened, oh, yeah. uh, um, first world position to say, like, I can get all the proteins I need from lentils. Well, that's not the case for the vast majority of human beings. The vast majority. Uh, who live on yeah. this planet. They they, yeah, they right. need animal protein to survive and, you know, to survive in healthy ways. Yeah. And, you know, what's curious to me, Tony, is that that, that kind of um, rhetoric will often come from those who seem to, um, I don't know, maybe posture themselves as having a, a broader, more enlightened view of the world. But to your point, it's, it, it really is a more provincial view of the world. Yeah. 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 And I was even, you know, it's, it's tricky because of course, if, if you and I were joined in the field next fall by every single American who needs protein and who eats protein, uh, we would quickly decimate the populations of antelope, elk, whitetail, and mule deer. I mean, yeah. they, they'd be gone in a heartbeat. Uh, I was on a conversation recently with some hunters about factory, not the, not factor, um, the the like uh, meat grown in a lab, basically. Mm-hmm. So meat mm-hmm. extracted from the DNA of living creatures and then grown in a lab. Um, you know, synthetic meat, kind of. So it's not like the Impossible Burger made with pea protein and from, yeah. from vegetables, but it's actually meat just grown outside of an animal. And, you know, my response to that was as a hunter, I mean, all the hunters were like freaking out and thought that was a terrible thing. And I thought, you know, I don't love factory farming. I don't love, and you know, you're part of the world driving in Eastern Colorado and seeing thousands upon thousands of of beef cattle uh you know just standing knee deep in muck and waiting to be slaughtered mm-hmm. um and i've been inside of a chicken kill plant and and watched that which is just a stunning breathtaking the the number of chickens that they dispatch per minute mm-hmm. is it's it's all, all hard to get your mind around, but then you mm-hmm. look at the amount of meat that Americans eat every year, and then you expand that around the globe. And I thought, well, you know, if if it will, if that would lessen the number of animals that are involved in the factory farm system, I don't know that that's a threat to hunters hmm. for people to be eating meat that's grown in a lab. I do. You know, obviously, it's tricky because in the past in the United States, well, we've white, we've decimated entire populations of like the buffalo for you know for um to, for use in restaurants and things like that, which is why we're not allowed to serve wild game in restaurants here in this country anymore. Uh-huh. Um, but I wonder what you think about that as a as a you know theologian and ethicist. Uh, the, the different ways that people might, or that we as a society might try to get the protein to the people who need it. Well, uh, well, what that brings to mind, Tony, is uh, just increasingly I've become convinced of the the ethically convoluted nature of the world we inhabit and the lives we live in that world. And I kind of take that, I take my cues 
on that from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, in in his his ethics, the very first part of it, he talks about this you know, this Christian doctrine of justification. And that when I when I first dipped into Bonhoeffer in that years ago, it was really sobering to me in a I think a healthy way because he just kind of rubs your nose in the fact that we live in a a world that is more morally convoluted or broken than we can ever imagine, which means yeah. that. You can't even get out of bed in the morning and do anything without being complicit to some extent with something that's morally mixed, something that you disapprove right. of, something you wish right. were not happen. Right. And that's just the that's the nature of the brokenness of the world we inhabit. Um, which which means that I mean, for me, it, it indicates that that there's not going to be any. Um, any action I can take in the world, um, except maybe, you know, just very pedestrian actions of moving a piece of furniture. There's not going to be any meaningful action I can take in the world that doesn't have some kind of ethical shadow side to it. Um, and, I, and I have to, which is what, you know, as a Christian, that's what points me back to, you know, themes of redemption and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I've got to be able to live in that kind of a world. And it seems to me uh, something of a fantasy that I ought to be able to live a sort of ethically puristic life without any con any ethical contamination or um, mix, you know, mixture to what I do. So to your, I'm trying to work my way back around to your question. Yeah. When, you know, when I, when I think about um, uh, all of the different, ethical downsides to providing protein for the world um, that grieves me. And, you know, like you, I'm, I'm wanting to do whatever I can to make even any little dent in that. And at the same time, I'm never going to fully expunge that mm -hmm. from the world. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure I would get given the way yeah. things have developed socially and economically. I don't know at this point that, I could without doing equal or more damage in another way. Yeah. So it's it's always it's always mixed. I love that, Don. It's I, an I ethical mean, potpourri, I, I just, which yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I, I I think I've gotten a feel for your question from your question. No, I I love it. I love I love the honesty, and I do think that. Uh, you know, too too often this happens in Christianity, but it also in other ideologies, whether it's veganism or politics or whatever. Is that you know people tend to strive for the ideal, and they have this ideal in their mind. Mm -hmm. And the truth of it is that we live in a very you know complex and ethically unclean type of world. Um, and and it, it's, I've always been attracted more to ethics that are about making the best ad hoc decisions based on the situations that confront us as human beings, as opposed to saying, you know, there's, we have some kind of, um, Ideal ethical situation, like it's taking place in a in a sterile laboratory, right. because that's never obviously the way that any of us actually lives. No, um, it can't be. So, yeah, which leads me to the last one, and of you know we're 
We're going to have to come back, I hope, and I hope you're willing to come back for another hour in the next few months and, and talk about the positive, your, your multiple positive reasons for hunting in your essay. But I do, before we end, want to close on the last objection, which I think leads right to this, because it it's the question of the objection that human beings have an unfair advantage over these animals we're hunting um, based on our weaponry and our technology. Um, and therefore, you know, it's, it's unfair for human beings to hunt these, hunt these animals and then eat them. And I just, the reason I want to bring, you know, I think it flows right along with what we've already been talking about is it, there's, there is a lot of talk in the hunting community, Christian or non-Christian about, um, the ethics of fair chase and, you know, certain things are like, for instance, I think that, um, the, uh, cameras, trail cameras that have cellular, uh, service to them should not be, I don't think they're ethical. I'm not saying they should necessarily be outlawed, but I don't use them and I don't think they're ethical because I don't think I should be sitting in my cabin and have six cameras up around my property and be able to look at my phone and know where the turkeys are today Mm -hmm. and just run out and hunt them. I think having trail cameras out is okay, but the kind I have, I have to pull the cards and then I look at them. There's no way I I can't immediately go and, and, uh, you know, attack an animal like that. And, and obviously there's all sorts of um, ballistics questions with different, uh, calibers of firearms that you use to hunt different animals and things like that. Um, and But human beings, I mean, I guess my first thing I'd say is when you see, uh, you know, um, an, uh, an, in an Africa, a, a video of in Africa of a lion attacking a baby elephant and eating it. Do you think that like the lion has an unfair advantage over the baby elephant because it has sharper teeth? Or you know, um, I think any time a predator goes after prey, that there is an advantage. That that's what makes that's a difference between a predator animal and a prey animal. But when do you make these as as a Christian ethicist? Where are these lines that we cross and say, well, certain things do give us actually go from having a fair advantage to an unfair advantage over the prey that we're hunting? Uh, I I think that those are phenomenal questions, and I'd I'd love to. Um chase some of these down with you when we've got more time. Um, I'll just throw a couple of quick ideas into the hopper. Um, one is I, I think we, we often find out where we've gone too far ethically, uh, after we've gone that far and then we look yeah. back or we see some of the consequences of it. Now that that's not a, it's not meant to be a utilitarian ethic, you know, like, okay, go and see see how far you can go. Yeah. Yeah. But that just, I I think that's just a matter of fact that sometimes we find out where those lines are after we have, we've bumped up against them and seen some of the negative consequences. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, collectively or societally, it's such an important thing to have really, really strong wildlife conservation programs, which I know you're a, you're a huge advocate of those and uh, people like Granella and others, uh, who are, 
you know, the, the most avid hunters are also the most um, avid conservationists, which that those have to go hand in hand because um, that th- those conservation efforts uh, societally, communally, legally are one of the uh, one of the boundaries, one of the uh, guardians of our ethics because they keep us from doing things that are going to decimate the animal population, which is yeah. a good thing. And even bag limits and things like that uh, will only let us do so much. And that's, that's as it should be. Um, hmm. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a good place for us to stop. And when we can uh, come back on, maybe I might um, pitch a few very specific potential, you know, lines, those, those gray areas mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm we as humans and hunters and predators have an unfair advantage uh, mm. versus maybe what you would call a fair advantage in the, mm. in the ethics of fair chase. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me, can I throw just one more thing in really, really fast? Yeah, and, let's hear it. That is, yeah. When, um, when we're hunting, uh, if, if we want to go with the category of an unfair advantage, uh, it, it, do we have an advantage? Yeah. In some respects we do. Some. Sure. Um, but what makes an advantage unfair? Uh, the, the other place my mind goes quickly is that when I'm employing techniques that are going ultimately to cultivate in me a disregard or a disrespect for the animal I'm, I'm taking, uh, I think I'm on dangerous ground there. When, I, when yeah. I start to have a really glib or cavalier approach toward the life I'm taking, uh, and if I'm using yeah. technologies or techniques that cultivate that in me, I think I'm on a dangerous path there. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, yes, I, I, I agree with you. And if there's anything I would like to be, you know, my contribution to the American hunting scene, it's that very thing mm-hmm. that, that, mm-hmm. that more hunters would have respect for the prey and the animal um, and yeah, not doing a ca- cavalier way. I've, I've ragged on this podcast many times on the hunting TV shows. I see where guys are high fiving over the dead animal, you know, yeah. uh, and it just yeah. makes me sick to my stomach. So yeah, that's, that's well, not the way. No, that's not the way. Okay. You and I are about half done. Are you okay? Coming back <laughs> on sometime? Would love to. Oh my gosh. This has been Great. I kind of had a feeling we we wouldn't we wouldn't get through everything I wanted to talk about with you, but uh, we I'm gonna schedule something with you, and I think listeners will be excited to think ahead about the rest of our conversation because you have a lot more in this essay and just a lot more I'd like to talk to you about. So we will do it again soon. Yeah. Prior to your. Prior to your hunt, now now will you spend the summer fishing, or are you a turkey hunter in the spring, or what? You know, no, I've never I've never hunted turkey. Uh, I'm probably going to pick fishing back up simply because uh, one of my sons has really really gotten into fly fishing. I mean, the, the guy's just oh, cool. gone nuts over it, and he makes enough money to be able to do it, and you know, buy all the all the gadgets. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, so I'm probably going <laughs> to pick up fly fishing this summer just to hang out more with my son because he's doing it so much and 
want to teach my granddaughter how to fish. Um, but otherwise I'm, you know, uh, I need, I need to find some waterfowl hunting. I've never hunted waterfowl. So ah. maybe I, I know you do that. And so maybe come we can on, work at an arrangement on, where, yeah, you can take me waterfowl hunting and you can come to, we can meet in Wyoming and I'll t- take you antelope hunting. Oh, I, in a heartbeat, my friend, in a heartbeat, we'll, we'll go up to North Dakota and shoot some ducks and some geese. It's, it is great. I love it. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Well, thank you. Thanks. And I'm glad to be reconnected with you and, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll, we will continue this conversation, uh, shortly on the Reverend Hunter podcast. So Don, thanks a lot for coming on. You bet. Thank you, Tony. 